rooted but not restricted. Rooted but not restricted. Because I believe that we are rooted in the word without our work being restricted by these walls in which we worship. We are rooted in the word without our work being restricted by the walls in which we worship. So I'm contending, I'll read the text, I'm contending that we need a biblical worldview that is relevant to answer the questions that the secular world is asking. We need a biblical worldview that is relevant to answer the questions that the secular world is asking. I read from the 17th chapter of the book of Acts. Acts chapter 17, verses 16 through 34. Acts 17, 16 to 34. Hear these words from the word. Now, while Paul waited for them at Athens, his spirit was stirred within him when he saw the city wholly given to idolatry. Therefore disputed he in the synagogue with the Jews and with the devout persons and in the market daily with them that met with him. Then certain philosophers of the Epicureans and of the Stoics encountered him. And some said, what will this babbler say? Others, he seemeth to be a setter forth of strange gods because he preached unto them Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him unto Areopagus, saying, May we know what this new doctrine whereof thou speakest, us, speakest is? For thou bringest certain strange things to our ears. We would know, therefore, what these things mean. For all the Athenians and strangers which were there spent their time in nothing else but either to tell or to hear some new thing. Then Paul stood in the midst of Mars Hill and said, Ye men of Athens, I perceive in all things ye are too superstitious. For as I passed by and beheld your devotions, I found an altar with this inscription to the unknown God, whom therefore ye ignorantly worship, him declare I unto you, God that made the world and all things therein, seeing that he is Lord of heaven and earth, dwelleth not in temples made with hands, neither is worship with men's hands, as though he needed anything, seeing he giveth to all life and breath and all things." And hath made of one blood all nations of men for to dwell on all the face of the earth. And hath determined the times before appointed and the bounds of their habitation. That they should seek the Lord, if haply they might feel after him and find him. Though he be not far from every one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. As certain also of your own poets have said, for we are also his offspring. For as much then as we are the offspring of God, 
We ought not to think that the Godhead is likened to gold, a silver, a stone, graven by art and man's device. And the times of this ignorance God winked at. But now commandeth all men everywhere to repent. Because he hath appointed a day in the which he will judge the world in righteousness by that man whom he hath ordained. Whereof he hath given assurance unto all men in that he hath raised him from the dead. And when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. Another said, we will hear thee again of this matter. So Paul departed from among them. Howbeit certain men clave unto him and believed, among the which was Dionysius the Areopagite, and a woman named Damaris, and others with him. We need a biblical worldview that is relevant so that we can answer the questions that the secular world is asking. And in order to do this, we need to be empowered by the word, by the word. For Jesus said to those ecclesiastical church bosses in John 5, 39, search the scriptures, for in them ye think ye have eternal life, and these are they who testify of me. We need to be empowered by the word so that we know what we believe. But we also need to be equipped with the word. For Jesus speaks to us and inspires Peter to write the words in 1 Timothy or 1 Peter chapter 3 verse 15. Always be ready to give a reason for the hope that lies in you. A reason. The Greek word apologia, apology, a defense for the hope that lies in you. We not only need to know what we believe, but now we need to know why we believe what we believe. We need to be equipped with the word, but we need to be established in the word. Established in the word. And Paul says to his protege Timothy in 2 Timothy 1.12, I am not ashamed, for I know in whom... I believe, and that he's able to keep that which I've committed unto him against that day. Paul is saying to Timothy, I know whom I believe. It's one thing knowing what you believe. It's another thing knowing why you believe what you believe. But it's, it's still another thing knowing who you believe. Because there will come times in your life when crises will upset your equilibrium. And you'll find yourself at the bottom. And you need to know that at the bottom, it's solid. The shooting, the murdering of a son like ours while working on his job. A baby born with cancer. Some kind of turbulence that threatens your tranquility. And you cannot find a scripture that will give you enough consolation to know what you believe, and you can't find any theological truth that will enable you to understand why you believe what you believe. In other words, you get shaken. 
and you lose your equilibrium, your balance. You don't know what you believe. You don't know why you believe. But if you know who you believe, somehow or another, it will hold you until you finally get reconnected with what you believe and why you believe. I don't know about tomorrow. I just live from day to day. I don't borrow from the sunshine for the skies may turn to gray. I don't worry about the future for I know what Jesus said. And today he walks beside me for he knows what lies ahead. Many things about tomorrow I don't seem to understand. But I know who holds tomorrow. And I know he holds my hand. Uh, You will deal with from the world, the anthropological questions, that is the questions that come from human beings. Who am I? Why am I here? Where do I go from here? What is the meaning of life? Not if, but when I pass, what will I pass on to others? Aside from dollars and cents and houses and land, I'm talking about stuff that cannot be garnished. I'm talking about stuff that sticks around regardless of whether the economy goes up or down. What will I pass on to others? The anthropological question will always be there. But the greater question is the theological question. That is the God question. Somehow, somewhere lurking in the backwoods of every person's mind is the God question. I don't care how agnostic they may seem, how they may seem to be very atheistic. The God question is always there. Does God exist? St. Thomas Aquinas, 1225-12. 74, that great medieval church theologian in his Summa Theologica, that is his summary of theology, that is his systematic theology, comes up with a number of arguments that he uses to argue for the proofs for the existence of God that's related to creation. One, the argument of gradations, gradations as relates to creation. Mm. That creation shows us a sense of unorganized mass mm, and a graduation to complex organisms. And that's rooted in creation. Or your second argument is design. That this world is a picture of design, not coincidence, not incidence, not accident, but providence. If there's design, there must be a designer behind the design. And the only explanation for that is God. All the argument of movements, there's movement in creation at first Verses of Genesis 1 says, And the earth was without form, and void, and darkness upon the face of the deep. And the Spirit of the Lord moved upon the face of the water, moved upon the face of the water, and separated 
land from sea and light from darkness. This idea of movement. But then the other argument is this idea of necessary being, necessary being. And Jesus says in John 1 verse 3, all things, all things, all things were made by him. And without him was not anything made that was made. Hmm. He's the necessary being. But finally, there's this whole idea of cause and effect. If there is an effect or a consequent or a result, there has to be a cause. And Paul puts his finger right on the pulsating heartbeat of creation where he says in Colossians 1 and 17, all things consist by him. In other words, he holds all things together. He's the glue that holds it together. And he uses these proofs to argue for the existence of God that's related to creation. I want to say to Dr. Um, Aquinas, as great as he is, he's in heaven now, I hope. He's in heaven. God cannot be proved. God must be assumed. The Bible opens up not trying to prove God, but just assuming God. Verse 1, Genesis 1. In the beginning, God. God's the only one who had no beginning. He began the beginning, and he has no end. And therefore, you don't try to explain God because you don't. You can't. He's too complex. He's too much. You have to experience God, not explain God, but experience God. No wonder you hear this blind man in John chapter 9 who's been born blind. He's never seen the rose in his crimson splendor, nor the lily in its purple purity. He's never seen a cloud. He's never seen his parents. He's never seen anything. He was born blind. But one day Jesus encounters him because we never encounter Jesus. He encounters us. He always initiates it. And Jesus uh, said to the man, uh, come here. And Jesus sets a pharmaceutical practice on the side of the road, spits in some dirt, rubs it together, puts it on the man's eyes, and tells him to, to go to the, pool, uh, to the pool called Siloam. And Siloam means sit. So he sent him to sit. And he went and washed his eyes. And he came back seeing. And the church bosses who didn't like Jesus and were always trying to trap him Ask this man, how did you see? And the man said, a man by the name of Jesus, I noted my eyes and I came seeing. And of course, they immediately started criticizing. Oh, he's a sinner. And the blind man said, well, look, I haven't been to Beeson Divinity School to study with Robert Smith, and I haven't been to Southern Seminary, and I haven't been to all these other schools, so I don't have any kind of Christology, that is, the study of Christ. Whether he's a sinner or not, I don't know. Now, that's not good. You don't know whether or not Jesus is a sinner. He didn't know. But he said, this one thing I know, I used to be blind, but now I see. And you can't deny that because I've had an experience with God. I think, brothers and sisters, we need to be one thingified. One thing you got to know 
Like Mother Maddie Johnson of our church used to say, you got to know that you know that you know that you know. You may know a lot of other things, but you got to know one thing. One thing and one thing only above everything else. The psalmist knew one thing. Psalm 27 verse 4, one thing have I desired of the Lord, and that which will I follow after, that I might dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to behold the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. Just one thing. One thing. That rich young ruler in Mark chapter 10 verse 21 who said to Jesus, look, I've kept all these laws from my youth up. Jesus says, you lack one thing. Sell everything you have and give to the poor and take up your cross and follow me. Just one thing. Here's what Jesus says to Martha down in Bethany. She's in the kitchen cooking. And Mary is sitting at the feet in the solarium listening to Jesus. And Jesus says to Martha when Martha complains to Jesus and says, make my sister come here in the kitchen and help me. He says, look, you are bothered by a lot of things. And the word bothered or cumbered is the Greek word for contortion. You are like a contortionist. You all twisted up. But Mary has chosen one thing that is necessary, and it will not be taken away from her. The Apostle Paul says in Philippians chapter 3, verse 13, he says, I have not apprehended, neither am I perfect, but this one thing I do, forgetting the things which are behind, and wishing forth to the things which are before. I press, I agonize toward the mark for the prize of the high calling of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. That's 19th century Danish existentialist philosopher Søren Kierkegaard said, purity of heart is to think one thing. And you've got to know one thing. You've got to know that Jesus Christ is your Savior. You can't guess about it. You can't speculate. You may not know algebra. You may not know trigonometry. You may not do well in chemistry, but whatever else you know, make sure that you know Jesus is your Savior and that you will spend eternity with him in glory. You can't explain God. You have to experience God. It was Dr. Carl F.H. Henry, a great Southern Baptist theologian, just before he died, who was interviewed by Dr. Greg Thornberry down at Union University in Jackson, Tennessee, Dr. Thornberry asked him a question. He says, Dr. Henry, what's the most profound question you've ever put to your students? You've been teaching all of these years. You are a prolific theologian. Uh, you've turned out uh, a robust body of um, writings What's the most profound question you put to your students? He hesitated and he said, I asked them, have you met the risen Lord? And of course, I'm thinking he's going to come up with something really profound, you know, some really deep. Suddenly it blows your mind, the intricacies of theology and delve into the innermost recesses uh, of uh, profundity and, 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 and somehow take the conundrum, the puzzle that has mystified 
uh, theologians for centuries and say, no, no, no. Have you met the risen Lord? Because if you haven't met the risen Lord, none of us, nothing else matters. And I asked you today, have you met the risen Lord? There are some things I may not know. There are some places I may not go. But this one thing I am sure, that God is real for I can feel him in my soul. Yes, God is real. Real in my soul. Yes, God is real for he has washed and made me whole. His love for me is like pure gold. Yes, God is real for I can feel him in my soul. It, it is Dr. Paul House who teaches uh, at Beeson. We've been together for quite a while. In his book, Bonhoeffer's Seminary Vision, who says how a Christian thinks about God determines how a Christian thinks about anything else. How you think about God and what you think about God determines how and what you think about anything else. I, I, I wish I had time, but I, I know I'm not going to harvest uh, this field. I know that, so I'm just going to skip something. But I, I really believe this. How you think about God determines how you think about yourself. The imago day that you have been made in the image of God. Think of it this way. Here's a man who has a son. This man who has a son is at his church, the head of the elders. This man who has a son who's the head of the elders is also the president of the local seminary. And the son is related to the father in all three ways. He's the son of the father. He's a member of the church where his father is the head of the elders. And he is also a seminary professor where his father is the president. This son does something that um, brings shame to the seminary. It's a violation of its rules. So the father, who's the head of the seminary, has to fire him. And this son has done something that uh, is embarrassing to the church and according to his bylaws has to be excommunicated unless he repents. And he doesn't repent and so as the head of the elders he has to move to remove his son from membership. But there's only one other relationship he has. That's the home relationship. The son remains the son of the father. He's not excommunicated at all. That relationship cannot be broken. Oh, I know fellowship can be disturbed, but the relationship cannot because the relationship means father and son. Hear me when I tell you, brother and sister, and there's not one of us that sits here right now who would open up their lives and let anyone have the privilege of looking at their lives completely. Like um, Brother Derek would say, the best thing that God could do for any of us to keep us from boasting and being arrogant is to put our entire life on the five o'clock news and let everybody see it. But do you know what? Whatever you've done, whatever I've done, whatever we've done, God never forsakes us. God never leaves us. God never disowns us. And we can come back. We can repent. And he can bring us back into that fellowship. Never let anybody tell you that your sin is too morbid, too dark, 
for God to forgive and for God to bring you back. He calls you back even now. Therefore, when that relationship is where it ought to be as relates to fellowship, it's because we see a father who never disowns us. Oh, love that will not let us go. We cast our weary soul in thee. He calls us. Now, I'm in the suburb of this text. I haven't gotten to downtown yet, but I'm in the suburbs. I'm coming to Main Street. I'm coming there. God calls us mm, to minister outside of these walls. There's a difference between a calling and a vocation. A vocation is a job. You're employed. But the higher work is that you've been called. So your vocation represents the platform that your calling can be used to demonstrate who God is. Your vocation may be that of an, astro of an astronomer. And you study planetary systems and stars. But your calling is... To be able to point people to Jesus who is the son of righteousness who rises with healing in his wings, who is the bright and morning star. Your vocation may be a botanist dealing with plants, but your calling is to point people to Jesus who is the true vine and the lily of the valley and the rose of Sharon. Your vocation may be that of a counselor in which you impart wisdom, but your calling is to point people to Jesus who is the wonderful counselor. Your vocation may be that of a dietitian and to cook good food and wholesome food that people might have uh, healthy bodies and live healthy lives. But your calling is to point people to Jesus who is the bread of life. Your vocation may just be an educator, but your calling is that of pointing people to Jesus who is the wisdom of God. Your vocation may be that of a mortician, but your calling is that Appointing people beyond the undertaker to the overtaker, Jesus Christ, who said, I'm the resurrection and the life. Your vocation may be a sanitation technician, a garbage person, but your calling is to tell people about Jesus who said, The Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which is lost. Your vocation may be that of a healthcare practitioner, a doctor, a nurse, or so forth, but your calling is to point people to Jesus who is the great physician. And as our foreparents used to say, he's got more medicine in the hem of his garments than all the drugstores in town. Ah, God has called you. Sure, you want a job that is going to pay you well. And all, but let that just be a place that positions you that you can represent Christ in that place. So God has called us. And we need to be open to that calling wherever we are outside of these four walls. Sam Yorty was the mayor of the city of Watts, California. The Watts riots broke out in 1965, and uh, he took a famous evangelist in, in, on a helicopter survey, survey to look over the burning buildings and the overturned cars and the rioting that was taking place, and they flew over it in a helicopter. Martin Luther King Jr. decided, no, I'm not going to fly over it. I'm going to go into it and talk to the young people and tell them that violence is futile 
and talk about love being greater than hate and so forth and so on. I think we need to stop helicoptering. I'm creating that word. Helicoptering over things and go in the midst of it and get involved with the pain and with the predicaments that people are in and let them know Christ is the answer. Helicopters won't do. God didn't send Jesus in the incarnation and he flew over us. The Bible says in John 1.14 that the word Christ was made flesh and dwelled among us. Eugene Peterson in his, his message Bible said the word became flesh and moved into the neighborhood. It's got to be that. We must be open to that calling. Which means we involve ourselves in the crisis. More people are bowling seemingly these days. But some are not enlisting and involving themselves in a bowling league. They miss the social networking, just bowling alone. It's kind of like what we have done. My great, my great adjective, grandmother, Mary Frances Edmonds, Edmonton, Georgia. We'd be taken there um, every other year. She had a porch. I can still see cars driving down that dusty dirt road. And she'd holler, hey, Frank. Hey, Mary. They'd talk sometime. They'd pull down that road, come right into to where we were sitting on the porch. She'd give them lemonade, have conversations. She knew everyone they went down because she had a porch existence. We've got a patio existence. I like a patio. But a patio, you can just go in the back, have it screened in. Don't ever have to see anybody. They don't see you. You don't see them. You just live happily ever after. There's no such thing as solo Christianity. We are called to be in community with people. And most of the people we're in community with are Christians. God has called us to get outside of the walls. And people we work with and people who live in our community, and people that we know who don't know Christ, take them out to dinner. Take them to bowling sometime. Go shopping with unbelievers. Not just gather together in the patio with fellow believers in Jesus Christ. Well, I think I'd better move to the text, don't you? So we can, uh, you know, have to leave that field un unharvested maybe and, um, and go on. Here is the text. Paul, in the 17th chapter of Acts, has been waiting on, on Silas and Timothy to come and join him at Athens. Verse 15, they don't arrive. And Paul has to go to Athens to carry out his assignment because he couldn't wait any longer. There comes a time when you can't wait on people. If God has called you to do something and you know what that calling is, you've got to do it. It's Martin Luther King Jr. who reminds us again that if a great door of truth has been opened to you and God has called you to go through it. He says, you may be 36, and he wrote this when he was 36 years of age. 
you may be 36. And if you don't answer that call, you may live to be 80, but you'll be just as dead at 80 as if you were at 36. And if God has called you to something and you don't accept that call, you may be successful in everywhere you, in every place you go. That's great. But as Augustine says, thou hast made us for thyself and our souls cannot find rest until they find rest in thee. God has made a God-sized hole in us. Nothing can fill that hole. Money can't do it. Sex can't do it. Education can't do it. Fame can't do it. There's something that is still lacking and crying out. And it cannot be filled by anyone except God. And here is Paul hearing this call, go to Athens. And he goes and waits for Timothy to come and catch up with him. Athens is not what it was 500 years prior to this time. Then it was the city of Socrates, 500 B.C., and then Plato, and then Aristotle. It was the harvests, if you will, of that great area of intelligentsia. It's now been reduced to about 5,000 people. The great city in Greece now is Corinth, for which Paul is on his way. And Paul enters that city, and the first place he goes to is a synagogue because there had to be a sizable enough Jewish population to have a synagogue. There had to be 10 households over which Jewish men presided. So it's a sizable enough city to have a Jewish synagogue. He preaches there. There are some God-fears there who are Gentiles or Greeks who are on the verge of becoming Jewish proselytes, converting to Judaism. He preaches there and evidently does not get a great response. He goes down to the Agora, that is the marketplace, at the Kenwood Malls, at the Northgate Malls, where you can buy wares and buy materials and so forth. But more than that, it was a place of conversation where you met people and talked with people. And Paul went there and undoubtedly runs into representatives of two of the great philosophical Greek schools. One, the Epicureans. The Epicureans in this text. They're individuals who didn't believe in the resurrection. They believed that once you died, you were dead. That's it. There is no afterlife. Life ends when you take your last breath. And all Epicureans are not dead, of course. They didn't believe in the resurrection. They believed in hedonism, that is, pleasure, pleasure. You want to look at an Epicurean? Look at the 12th chapter of the Gospel of Luke, verses 16 to 21. And here's a man uh, who has a bumper crop and needs more storage. So he builds larger barns to accommodate his bumper, his harvest. But he still needs more storage because his harvest continues to grow. And he says to himself, this is his soliloquy, his self-conversation. So, you got it made. Take it easy. Eat, drink, be merry. Mm. And God intrudes. God interrupts and says, I notice you didn't say anything about me. You got many years. You even said it's your crops. It's your soul. He says, you're a fool. 
you are going to die this night. You talking about many years. Tonight your soul is required of you. And what, what will all of these things you've accumulated, what will they be to you? Nothing. Nobody. I've never seen a Brinks truck behind uh, a hearse. You don't take it with you. And so there were the Epicureans. Have pleasure. Enjoy yourself. But don't, don't let God be a footnote. Don't let God be one who is given an honorable mention. He must be first. We are called to love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength and use things. We turn it around. We love things and attempt to use God. God will not be used. The Epicureans. But there's the other group. The other philosophical school of the Greeks, the Stoics, they believed in the resurrection. They believed in an existence in which you, you dwelled as a disembodied spirit. Disembodied. And they believed in having discipline, uh, pleasure and disciplined living, and so forth. And they were individuals. You won't see them. You see where they put their emphasis on craniology, your head. Nothing about the heart. The head, wisdom, knowledge. Paul would have to admit he's influenced by the Stoics. Look at him in Philippians chapter 3, verses 4 through 8, and he talks about all of these things that... He had accrued to him from the smallest tribe of Israel, Benjamin, a Pharisee of Pharisees, uh, circumcised eighth day of uh, his life, a man who has written and traveled and studied at the feet of Gamaliel, went to the University of uh, Tarsus in Cilicia. And he said, but when I look at, on this scale, all the things that I accomplished and that were credited to my account. And I looked at Christ. All these things were lost that I might win Christ. Nothing else mattered. When I compared Christ and stuff, stuff faded away because Jesus is more than stuff. Oh, and when I come to die, give me Jesus. What else will help you when you come to die? Your jewelry, your good clothes. Now, last nice, I like them, I like them. See how my tie and my handkerchief match? I like this, it's nice. But when I come to die, and when I'm all alone, and when my heart is broken, you say, give me Jesus. So the Stoics and the Epicureans, they were two of the schools that Paul will encounter. Now Paul is invited to speak. The Areopagus Council. Now this was a place, Mars Hill. My wife and I have been there a number of times. It's a place, it's a hill. And the Areopagus represents a council that talked about, well, it, it, it was a seeing, it was the 
Fox News. It was the CNN News. They talked about, look at verse 21. They spent all their time every day talking about some new thing. News, news, news. And Paul has brought up something new that they have not heard about. In verse 18, Paul talks about the resurrection from the dead. In verse 31, Paul talks about the resurrection from the dead. In verse 32, Paul talks about the resurrection from the dead. That's new. They, they don't understand how deity, that is God, could die and yet God be raised again from the dead. But that's exactly what verse 31 and 32 says, that God has ordained a day for him. Never name Jesus. Because these Greeks are not looking for a Messiah. They're looking for a Kyrios. They're looking for a Lord. Messiah doesn't fit them. That's Jewish. But Lord, Caesar is Lord. Yes. How then could your Lord die and then your Lord be raised again? And they are willing to listen to that because that's news. And Paul is invited to come to the top of Mars Hill and talk about this new thing called the resurrection. I wish we could be more like that as Christians, that we could at least listen to each other. Though we differed, differed on liturgy, differed on whether we want a blended service, a traditional service, or contemporary service. And I don't think in heaven we're going to have a choice. I don't know. I, I, I think we're just going to, worshiping him is just going to be enough. And I'm for that. That's fine. I just wish we could listen. I don't know why, because I'm an old man, I can't listen to someone rap about Jesus. I don't know why I can't. Saying the same words, amazing, great, how sweet the sound. Do, 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 do. They save a wretch like me. Do, 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 do. A one was lost, but now I'm found. I'm blind, but now I see. I don't know why. I don't know why. I don't know. That wasn't supposed to be in there because I can't sing. But my point is, same theology, different meter, different pace, different rhythm. I just wish we could just even listen to people when it comes to mm, gender thoughts. I'm not talking about negotiating. I'm talking about listening. I'm talking about Jesus talking to a woman who's been married five times, who's shacking up now with someone who's not her husband. And you know what Jesus starts the conversation with? Water. Give me some water. And he kept, kept talking about water. Then later on, she said, you must be a prophet. Then later on, she goes back to the city and says, come see a man who told me everything I've done. Is this not the Christ? They just start talking about water. I wonder why we can't just listen to people. Let them talk. Let them express what they want to express. And we hold on to the truth of the Bible, God's word, because we have showed compassion and interest in people to let them express. And then finally, we have an opportunity to show them the light of what Scripture talks about. The Areopagus said, Paul, come on up. And most of them didn't believe in what he was saying, but they listened. I wish we could listen to one another more to show that we respect 
each other in terms of being made in the image of God, that, that God wants us to go about being nobodies, trying to tell everybody about somebody who can save anybody, regardless of where they are. Paul comes up, and he gets a chance to speak. He said, well, first of all, I want to tell you, I, I was disturbed when I came to your city. I was exasperated. I was frustrated because I, I sensed that you are superstitious. I, I saw all of these gods in your pantheon. Yonder is Hades, the god of the underworld. And yonder is Hermes, the god of speed and commerce. And yonder is Apollo, the god of the sun. And yonder is Artemis, the god of the moon. And yonder is Aphrodite, the god of beauty. Yonder is Nike, the god of victory. And yonder is Eros, the god of love. And yonder is Zeus, the chief of the gods. But what disturbed me more than anything else was that you didn't want to offend any god and therefore you didn't want to leave any god out. I saw a god, uh, an inscription on which was written these words, to the unknown god. And you are worshiping that god and you don't even know who he is. I've come to tell you I know who he is. That's who I want to talk about. God is the god, that's where it starts, of creation. He's a God that is independent. And this is going to puncture somebody's pride. He doesn't need anything from anybody. Oh, I thought you needed me. I thought I was important. Don't you know who I am? Oh, I wish you could see my bio. Oh, I wish you could. God doesn't need Robert Smith. If Robert Smith dropped dead now, preaching would go on. I ain't that important. And if you think you're indispensable and unexpendable, you're married to that beautiful woman, drop dead. Somebody else might have their arms around her. Somebody else might be living in that house you just paid off and driving that car that you've been driving because none of us are indispensable. What's so wonderful about God is he doesn't need us, but he wants us, that he loves us. That he chooses us. But in essence, sometimes we wouldn't even choose ourselves. This kind of God is a God who's made out of one blood everybody. Jesus, a lot of theology in it. We just think it's a children's song. It's a powerful song. Jesus loves the little children. All the children of the world. Red, yellow, black, white, and brown. We don't bring that in because it doesn't rhyme. <laughs> Red and yellow, black and white, they are precious in his sight. Jesus loves the little children. And everybody is made of one blood. And what that does is those who are redeemed, people from every nation, tribe, kindred, and tongue, from Revelation 5, 9, and 7 and 9, that the church ought to be a Kodak moment of the future state of eternity. In other words, heaven wants us to look like it. Which means if I can't sit next to my brother, sister, and their, their, their child down here when the role is called down here, how will I answer the role up yonder? Because we're going to be together for a long time. Oh, it doesn't mean it erases our distinctions. 
We are different, but we are not deficient. Therefore, God has redeemed all of us also out of one blood. That is the blood of Jesus Christ. And this text calls us to for calls for repentance. God calls all people to repent, which is a word we don't use much. It doesn't mean just being godly sorrow. It means turning from to so that we go a different way. We repent. Paul says, God has called us to seek after God. Seek after him. He is not far away. He's here. Seek him because he came originally to seek you. This God cannot be like your gods in the pantheon. You can't make this God of silver and gold. Oh, no, 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 no. And you can't confine him within the walls of the Liberty Heights Church. I remember a church when I was a small uh, boy. They called that church the Church uh, of the Holy Ghost Headquarters. Well, I was too young to understand the, the false implications of that. But there is no church that is the Church of the Holy Ghost Headquarters. Holy Ghost starts there and moves and does what? No, 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 no. You can't take and confine him to these walls. He says in verses 31 and 32, and I'm almost done. I'm going to leave the field with more grain unharvested. It's all right. But he says, God has adorned, ordained, or chosen, appointed a day when this man, talking about Jesus, never brings his name up. This man will judge the world. Don't worry, not overly worry, about the status of this world. I don't mean be indifferent, don't care. I don't mean that. I'm saying don't be paralyzed by fear. This is my father's world. And as Abraham Kuyper says, when we look at the domain of, domain of our existence in which we live, Christ says there's not one square inch in it in which he does not say, mine. It all belongs to him. So don't be paralyzed by fear, brothers and sisters. Care, love. But this is our Father's world. And when things seem to be helter-skelter, out of order and out of his control, God is on the throne. Paul preached, and the results are people mocked him, some scoffed at him, some procrastinated and says, we'll hear you on this matter at another time. But there were some who believed. One of the members of the Areopagus, whose name was Dionysius, believed. Damaris believed. And others believed. Because you and I are not sent to transform or to change anybody. We are sent to be escorts to usher people into the presence of God for the purpose of transformation. So if we are going to provide a biblical worldview that's relevant so that we can answer the questions that the secular world is asking. We must know 
who we are by knowing who God is. And that's the only thing that enabled Dietrich Bonhoeffer to stand. When he was in the Flossenburg jail in Germany, being hung for his resistance to Hitler, he pinned a poem that is priceless. He asked himself the question, who am I? They often tell me, I step from my cell's confinement. Calmly, cheerfully, firmly, like a squire from his country house. Who am I? They often tell me, I used to speak to my waters freely and friendly and clearly as though it were mine to command. Who am I? They also tell me that I bore the days of misfortune equably, smilingly, proudly, like one accustomed to win. Am I then that which other men tell of? Or am I only what I myself know of myself? Restless and longing and sick, like a bird in the cage struggling for breath, as though hands were compressing my throat, yearning for colors, for flowers, for the voices of birds, thirsty for words of kindness, for neighborliness, tossing in expectation of great events, powerlessly trembling for friends at an infinite distance, weary and empty yet praying, at thinking, at waiting, faint and ready to say farewell to it all. Who am I? This or the other? Am I one person today and tomorrow another? Am I both at once a hypocrite before others and before myself a contemptible woebegone weakling? Or is there something within me still like a beaten army fleeing in disorder from victory already achieved? Who am I? They mock me these lonely questions of mine. Whoever I am, thou knowest, O God, I am thine. I'm thine, O Lord. I've heard thy voice and it told thy love to me. But I long to rise in the arms of faith and be closer drawn to thee. Draw me nearer. Nearer, nearer, blessed Lord, to the cross where thou hast died. Draw me nearer, 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 blessed Lord, to thy precious bleeding side. We are rooted in the word of God without our work being restricted by the walls in which we worship. Let us pray. Our Father, we thank you today that you've made yourself known to us in the person of your son, Jesus. Pervade the atmosphere of this place. Fill it 
touch the heart of someone who is longing for what they must have in order to find full satisfaction. Bring salvation to their house today, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.